Hi, my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. Hello, my name is Liz Crow. And I'm Jesse Spur. Welcome to another episode of Five Things. And today we welcome Erin Marsland, who's a clinical psychologist at the Queensland Eating Disorder Service here at the Royal Brisbane Hospital. How are you? Great, thanks. Thanks for having me. We're really excited to have you. We'd love to know a little bit about your practice background. Um, it's usually the nursing journey, but your health professional journey that's ended up uh, in the role you're in and a little bit more about the Queensland e- Eating Disorders Service. Yes. So I'm a clinical psychologist with QUEDS. Um, we call it QUEDS, but it's the Queensland Eating Disorder Service, which is the adult service for the state. We have various roles, advice and consultation. That's a primary role for Uh, Supporting teams, medical and mental health throughout Queensland. Um, We also have a treatment service, which has a day program and outpatient individual outpatient service for families and individuals affected by eating disorders. And we also offer education and training for health professionals and service development and policy for the state. And how on earth did you get into this very specialized area? I guess my journey came through studying pay equity issues and gender issues in my undergraduate. And then I transferred in to do a master's in trends in female sexuality. And I think once you uh, become really engrossed in the literature around female health issues, eating disorders is bound to come up. So Erin, how long have you been working in this area around eating disorders? Yeah, I've been working with adults affected by eating disorders since about 2007. I did inpatient ward at that time and then moved into a project, what was EDOS, Eating Disorders Outreach Service, became QUEDS um, and then have stayed in that role for 20 years almost. (laughs) Yeah, terrific. All right, so let's get into what we're going to talk about today. Um, I know that this is an area that lots of staff really do struggle with. So let's start off by your number one is eating disorders are a unique and individual experience. Yes. I want to start here um, almost as a caveat that I don't have a lived experience. I have a learned experience and typically QUED's education programs would like to lead with that real lived voice um, in our model of service whenever possible. And I guess I've sat with many individuals and families affected by eating disorders. And in some of those sessions, people have come to me with uh, concerns about media representations of eating disorders and how they didn't see themselves at all in that piece. So I guess I'm just aware that every journey is unique and I'm not going to land all of it today. <laughs> that's no problems. So what what is an eating disorder? Yeah, that's a big question. So <laughs> disordered eating, like so many things, falls on a spectrum or a continuum from, say, intuitive eating to appetite and healthy movement um, based on your body's restedness and 
uh, preparedness for exercise towards disordered eating. And that's a nebulous region of perhaps fad diets, perhaps cutting out certain food groups, perhaps uh, listening to rules more than to your body. And then at the other pointy end of the spectrum would be clinical eating disorders, anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, OSFED, other specified eating disorder. Okay. What's OSFED? Yeah, that's um the catch-all <laughs> diagnostic criteria for mm, the vast majority of that is atypical anorexia nervosa. That's the largest population in that group, but sub-threshold eating disorders. So not quite at the diagnostic criteria, which are quite stringent. Like bulimia nervosa, you have to have engaged in binging and purging once a week for the past three months. And perhaps that's not there for someone, but the experience is still quite rife. That would be an OSFED diagnostic criteria. It's no less serious. It's just different. Yeah. Um, I'm often really curious about this whole thing with eating disorders and disordered eating because one is a diagnosis, I guess. Is that correct? Whereas disordered eating, you know, I think lots of women have at some point participated in disordered eating, particularly in their younger years. I'm quite old. And so I remember, you know, and in my phase of school, everyone went through a phase where we only ate grapefruit uh, and lots of girls, you know, fainting, et cetera. But it was probably over a duration of about four to six weeks. And then, you know, most people went back to eating a normal diet. Is that considered disordered eating because it was a, around a fad? Is that the difference? Um, I would hesitate to diagnose anyone based on that retrospectively, but fainting is a real concern around um, eating disorders, particularly around nutrition, being able to get up to the brain. So your brain sending you kind of horizontal to be able to make sure that you're getting that blood flow. So that's a pretty big flag. Um, but disordered eating can be just, yes, fad dieting. Mm. Um, I will say there's a lot of probably undiagnosed eating disorders um, prevalent in the community. Retrospective studies that look back on lifetime prevalence really do um, suggest there are a lot of eating disorders that probably didn't fully um, get the help that they needed at the time that they needed it. Yeah. And would it be fair to say that part of that is that society sometimes really rewards disordered eating because someone loses lots of weight and all of a sudden can fit into tiny clothes and looks, I, I say amazing in inverted commas, uh, you know, very thin in their swimming costume. And so that people get those two things conflated and wrong. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think eating disorders are a true biopsychosocial disorder or illness. So the societal component there is we live in this culture of thin obsession and uh, fat phobia or fat stigma, um, which is completely inaccurate and socially constructed. So yeah. certainly that plays a role in the development or at least the maintenance of an eating disorder. Yeah. And so... Um I don't know if this is an appropriate way to speak, but are the big kind of eating disorders that most people would have heard of, what you already mentioned was anorexia nervosa, uh, bulimia. Um, is is there any other? Yeah, there are, there is a raft of eating disorder diagnoses. I think anorexia is particularly well recognized because of that visual emaciation. Um, so it's categorized by restriction. Bulimia nervosa is categorized by binging, objective binge episodes. 
sometimes people have questions about what's a binge. And I think about when I'm categorically diagnosing someone, it has to be an objectively large amount of food and a feeling of loss of control. I could not have stopped even if I wanted to. Um, So that's what I think about with bulimia nervosa. Binge eating disorder um, has the same objective binge episode, but without the punctuation of compensation. So with bulimia nervosa, you would have vomiting or exercise or some sort of compensatory behavior. Um, OSPED, we already discussed, is largely a subclinical population, but equally as damaging to the self. And then we also have ARFID, which sits a little bit outside the eating disorder traditional sense of um, it being tied to weight and shape, because ARFID uh, falls under three categories, um, usually a fear of aversive consequences. So if I eat this food, I might choke or vomit, or mm-hmm. recognizing uh, hunger cues is really difficult for that person. That might be like the person who gets involved in an activity and just won't eat for eight or nine hours and has significant malnutrition. Or the third category of ARFID, which I should mention is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. The third category of ARFID would be the concerns about the sensory characteristics of the food. So maybe just chewy or just fluffy or just white foods, that kind of thing. Um, But ARFID will lead to significant malnourishment um, and usually enteral feeding as well. So it kind of comes under the eating disorders without that over-concern with shape and weight. So ARFID, would that be common among people who perhaps have a diagnosis of autism or some other um, perhaps comorbidity? Is that correct? Yeah, it has come out of the DSM-4 um, more childhood feeding and eating disturbances and moved more into the adult sphere. Yeah. So yes, it might be associated with that. Yeah. There's a high overlap actually with autism and eating disorders. Mm, interesting. Okay. So it's great. Like we spent a fair bit of time drilling down to labels and in a lot of ways, we're going to actually go the opposite direction for the rest of the podcast, um, but really important to kind of get some definitions in the ground for people who are obviously going to be curious about it. We're really going to take that step forward to kind of practice wisdom and experience, learned experience that you're going to share with us. For us, I guess, to be more compassionate and more understanding, but less, I guess, fearful of providing care for people with eating disorders and more informed. Yeah, so that takes us beautifully into our number two, which is eating disorders share common thoughts, feelings, urges, and experiences. Why did you choose this as your second topic? Um, I guess I listed it as a dialectic against the first, that they are unique experiences for everyone's journey, but it's also both and in terms of they are unique, but they also share commonalities that underpin them. And even though we went pretty heavy into the diagnostic criteria, just to loop back, there is a transdiagnostic criteria that goes across the diagnosis, which I think of when I'm really thinking about, is this an eating disorder? And that's overinvestment in controlling shape and weight. So that might look like I need to have this many calories. I need to calculate this. I need to compensate for that because the control aspect is really important to my being able to manage in the world. This other edge of that double-edged sword would be overinvestment, shape and weight for defining our self-worth. So that means my worth in the world or how deserving I feel to be is determined by my shape and weight. So am I a good or bad person? Depends on my number on the scale. That's an awful way to live. Yeah. 
I remember Naomi Wolf, the feminist, uh, way back in the 90s, kind of saying that, you know, shape and look had been a way of really controlling women because as we entered into the workforce and women started to do well academically and started to be able to apply and achieve across the board in all levels of occupation, being able to say, yeah, but she's still fat or she's ugly was kind of a controlling component of that. And we do see uh, people, however they identify on the gender spectrum, now kind of self-talking that way. And I guess what you're saying is that's what pushes it into kind of an eating disorder realm. Is that correct? Yeah, that alongside the rigidity of which they hold the rules to be all important and all encompassing. But yeah, if there's anything where you feel like a good or bad person based on what you've eaten, that's a that's a concern to me. All right. So Erin, I'm really curious, like, you know, it's not just women impacted by this. It, it's right across the gender spectrum, uh, eating disorders. What is the actual prevalence of eating disorders? Because, you know, I imagine a lot of our listeners are, are thinking, oh, whoops, you know, like I, I've, I've done this to myself or I've had these thoughts, you know, do I have an eating disorder? Like what is the prevalence and how long would it have to persist before people should really go and get some help? So eating disorders in Australia um, are estimated to affect approximately 9% of the population. I mean, research shows that eating disorders are becoming more common in Australian society. So I'd be concerned if you're concerned, essentially, um, if you are noticing flags in yourself or a loved one, that this is getting rigid. And if I miss an exercise opportunity or if I have a cheat meal, that's that's going to impact on my mental health. Then that that's a time to consider where could I go to learn more about this? Yeah. And would most people start with their general practitioner or their family physician? Yes, uh, that's a good point for organizing care. I think in the earlier stages, when we're talking about screening and exploration of how much of a problem is this for me, some of the self-reflective tools on Inside Out and the Butterfly Foundation and National Eating Disorders Collaboration are a great source of education to open up that conversation with either yourself or someone you love. Yeah. And I think we're going to loop back to that in a little more detail with our final point as we wrap up. Okay, so your number three is eating disorders are all about food and nothing to do with food. Yeah, that's a funny um, Carolyn Costin quote. She's an American psychologist in this space. I like the idea that it really is both and because eating disorders are not all about the food. They are a serious, complex mental health issue with life-threatening consequences. I mean, eating disorders have the highest mortality of any psychiatric issue. Um, and I guess I didn't know that before I worked in this space, that they can be so deadly. Not a lot really kills young women besides anorexia nervosa. So just to flag that these are not trivial, these are complex issues with a real biopsychosocial underpinning. Biologically, I guess I mean the physical consequences of an eating disorder impact every system of the body, cardiac, liver, bones, you know this, I'm most concerned about the thoughts in the mind as a psychologist, but certainly my medical colleagues are looking at electrolyte balances and the risk of refeeding for people who have been malnourished for a long time or even an acute period of starvation. Yeah. Biologically, there's also a genetic underpinning, which is kind of new research. It might be of interest to people to understand that there is 
now a way to identify genetic markers that put you at more risk of developing an eating disorder. That's not the be all and end all of the story. There's epigenetic factors, of course, and you can have certain um, protective genetic predisposition that inhibits the presentation of some of that, but that there is a genetic underpinning and there's a heritability with eating disorders. We know that now. We didn't know that 10 years ago. So if you have a parent or an aunt or someone with an eating disorder, there's a greater chance that you may also develop an eating disorder. Yeah. It's a yeah, it's one of the things that we would look at in the picture. But we've always known that eating disorders run in family and I've, families and I think that in the past maybe there was even family blaming around it was modeled to you or um this person has grown up in an environment that's been toxic. We can step away from that now and say a lot of this is genetic underpinning. Um but the way that those present are based on your personal experiences as well and your environmental influences. Yeah. I guess it must be very difficult for people to understand if you are living or you're caring for someone or you have an inpatient, um, particularly things with like anorexia nervosa or with bulimia, you know, why don't they just stop? Why don't they just eat? Or why don't they just listen? Or like, I've prepared you something beautiful. It is your favorite. Why are you refusing it? It's so much more complex than that, isn't it? That's what you're telling us. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for bringing that up. I think that um, it can be frustrating to not understand that the mindset of a starved brain as well has very limited resources in being able to do things like decision-making, problem-solving. It's very hard for them to get out of because the cycle reinforces itself biologically, physically, socially, psychologically. It's it's a complete matrix. And that's why I think you need a multidisciplinary team to be involved in treatment. Yeah. So we've already covered like it. That's why it's not all about food. But what do you mean by it is all about the food? Yeah, our dietitian likes to say nutrition's not everything, but without it, you get nothing because you do need that nutrition to restore some of the brain and body functioning to be able to do the complex therapeutic work. Um, And it sounds difficult to even explain that you need to work through your biggest fear in order to then work through your biggest fear. It's like we ask people to sit down with a plate of snakes if they have a snake phobia and eat six times a day to then start to recover. It's big. Yeah. And it's complex. Yeah. Right. So your number four is people can and do recover from eating disorders, which is great to hear. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. I think um, in the ward environment, it can be hard to imagine the person as a different flourishing human because they are in the acute presentation of the illness and it can be really um, extreme starvation. And people describe it as it's as if the veneer of civilization has been removed, leaving bare the animal underneath. That's a famous quote from the starvation study. And I just think that's sort of the experience of the acute presentation. In the outpatient world, we see people come through that, re-nourish and make choices and healthy um, progress towards flourishing. Yeah. Is there an optimal time to address an eating disorder? Like if you're starting to watch, you know, uh, a young adolescent or a younger child start to develop some habits or mindset around eating, is there a kind of optimal time to, to really address these concerns? I think as you become aware of concerns, they should be addressed in that moment, sort of naturally. So if you're noticing someone um, really frustrated about a meal or 
cutting out certain food groups, you might flag it. As a health professional, you might say, you know, tell me a bit about your sleep and a bit about your eating. But as a concerned loved one, you might just say, is this impacting on the way you feel about yourself? You know, those are some easy screening questionnaires. But Yeah, I really like that, that you can, rather than say, how much have you had to eat today and what's your calorie intake and how much exercise, it's just really inquiring very gently and compassionately. Is this something that's really worrying you? You know, like how much space is this taking up in your mind? Um, is this something that, you know, you need some support or encouragement over? Yeah, I really like that. Your number five is where can I get more information and support if I am worried about a loved one or I'm worried about um, someone within our patient care who has an eating disorder? Yes, great. There's lots of support available. And like we just highlighted, recovery is possible for everyone at every stage of their journey. So if you're aware of some risk flags, like skipping meals or engaging in disordered eating or exercise habits or purging, then that's probably the time to start questioning it with that individual, so gently, like we, we just alluded to. Um, but if you're at the point of, this is a problem, we've discussed it, it's a problem, and I think that would be a good GP assessment because the GP is sort of the cornerstone of treatment. So they would make the referral into, say, QUEDS as an opportunity for recovery or any private practitioner mental health care plan. Um, the GP is still the main port of call, but there are assessment criteria that QUEDS have put together for when this is a admission-based eating disorder. Um, so you could Google QUEDS guidelines and child and health Child and youth health also have similar guidelines. Um, that just helps to get the whole wraparound medical picture because eating disorders are not visible to the naked eye. They're just so complex. You need to have that blood work yeah. to get the full picture. And given that this is an international podcast, a GP is a general practitioner or, or a family physician. And if you are outside of Queensland or outside of Australia, there would be comparable um, kind of organizations that you could look up uh, around eating disorders across the world, wouldn't they? Absolutely. But in a national context here, I would really recommend visiting butterfly.org. They also have a phone line, 1-800-ED-HOPE, that can answer some questions if you have that. Um, we also have NEDC, the National Eating Disorders Collaboration, or more locally, you could contact QUEDS or Google us or Eating Disorders Queensland, which is our NGO partner. Perfect. So I'm a bedside nurse. Someone has come in with due to a car accident. Um, and on the history, it says this person has an eating disorder. They're not in for their eating disorder. They're in because they've got multiple breaks, fractures that are being addressed orthopedically. What is my responsibility and what, like, how can I best support that patient if I've got an awareness that they have a history of having an eating disorder? It depends on where they're at when they come in. Um, obviously, you have some acute medical concerns to address in that scenario. But if it's someone that has had a history of an eating disorder and hasn't had active evidence-based treatment for the eating disorder, that's something that I would definitely encourage them to see a GP to negotiate. And it seems basic to say, but eating disorder interventions have to have an eating disorder plan. Um, I guess they have to have an intervention designed around food and eating. Sometimes people think that they've done eating disorder intervention, but they've done more 
um, let's say anxiety management or supportive psychotherapy or insight-oriented therapies, but we really do have to target the nutrition first. I think I've seen this at a number of times in practice over the years in intensive care and in general surgical sort of settings as well of really rest- uh, restrictive eating that's going to inhibit the healing, like in terms of suboptimal nutrition. So the, the pathway to kind of getting support for this is often through the dietitians in terms of looking at actually what does this person need? Okay, then they're not interested or willing to eat certain food types. And I mean, there's a complexity with hospital food as well mm-hmm. and looking at actually how fixed and rigid are they about their eating rather than possibly the history that's in the notes. Mm, that's yeah. a really good point. And supplements in hospital are very useful for getting that nutrition in in a small dose, like a meal in a popper. I'm really curious about, you know, you've already mentioned that when someone has a diagnosis of an eating disorder or is in the process of being diagnosed, that it's really important there's a multidisciplinary team approach to that. Can you talk us through like who are the important players that need to be involved? Yes. So the GP, again, is the cornerstone for navigating that, but hopefully you'll have a medical person, a GP, you would have a therapist, which may be a clinical social worker or a psychologist, some sort of allied health, ideally a dietitian as well. We on our team also have the luxury, I guess, of an OT. Um, There's quite often an exercise physiologist involved in the care. Uh, Psychiatry can be useful. And of course, nursing really is across all of the multidisciplinary roles in health because of that complexity in the nature of eating disorders. Is there anything else bedside nurses need to kind of keep into account in terms of if you've got a concern about how much nutrition someone's having as an inpatient? Well, I think it's in our screening tools. Malnutrition screening is part of uh, our admission screening tools and also something that we're ideally doing every day, um, constantly. So the patient that's admitted for any other acute illness and we're seeing their dietary intake may be inadequate for the requirements of actually getting recovering from that illness, uh, healing wounds, um, recovering from surgery, recovering from uh, an acute illness. Our pathway is really referral to a dietitian for a thorough nutri- nutrition screening assessment. So we're not dealing with the eating disorder, we're dealing with actually potential malnutrition, which is an important thing and probably an easy thing. The first thing the dietitian is going to want to do is some sort of objective, have some sort of objective information. So if we've got concerns on anyone's dietary intake, we should automatically be starting a food intake chart and actually just so that we've got some sort of measure of that and looking at what's gone off the tray um, and just bring, casually bringing it up in conversation. If someone has a meal that there's nothing eaten, just seeing if it's nausea, if it's appetite, um, if it's preference, food preference. And if you can't kind of get to a solution with that, and then you start to see um, a repeated pattern of inadequate intake, then it's a dietitian referral. I agree. Mm, Perfect. Erin, you've given us such a a great broad range. So I'm going to attempt now to summarize that. So your number one was eating disorders are a unique and individual experience. And I guess what I was taking home from this is that 
We do have these very known diagnoses in the community, but we can't say one person with anorexia nervosa is going to have the same experience as someone else, that this really comes down to the person in the context of their lives and how they think about and their experiences and who they're surrounded by. You helped us by kind of explaining the difference between an eating disorder and disordered eating, which might be something that is more around fad diets or you know, having an obsession on doing things for short periods of time that are not something that are following people through the course of their lives. So there's anorexia nervosa, which lots of people have heard of, but essentially it's characterized by restriction of eating and an inability to achieve a healthy body weight. We've got bulimia nervosa, which is where people, uh, it's characterized by objective binge eating, which is usually large amounts which are out of control. This is completely different from someone on a Friday night eating too many Tim Tams and a bag of chips. This is where people are, they've lost control of their consumption and then it is followed by uh, lots of compensation. So that can be vomiting, but it can also be excessive exercise. We then have binge eating, which is, you know, this binging food out of control with no compensation. OSFID, which is Other Specified Feeding and Eating Disorders. And then we have ARFID, which is Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorders. And we might see an association with this with complexities around comorbidities, such as a diagnosis of autism or something else. Your second point is that eating disorders share common thoughts, feeling, urges, and experience. So why they people might have different experiences of them, there's a common theme or some common um, commonalities of what happens for people with an eating disorder. And I think the take home here is if anyone is kind of thinking, I'm a good or bad person based on what they've consumed or eaten or how much they've exercised, this would be a, a, a red flag that there's something going on with their eating. It's where people might have an overinvestment in controlling their shape and weight, what they eat and what they do or an overinvestment for defining their self-worth based on what they've eaten or how much they've exercised. And for all of these people, there's often a rigidity of rules. I'm a good person if I've achieved this, or I'm a good person if I haven't eaten today, or if I'm a good person if I've fit into these size four pants, uh, etc. Number three is eating disorders are not all about food and everything to do with food. And we need to remember that this is a serious, complex mental health issue and that it's life-threatening and that eating disorders have the highest mortality of all the mental health um, conditions that people can have. So this is really serious. We need to, you know, absolutely act early if you've got concerned about a loved one or a patient. Um, you've said that over the course of recent times that we're really starting to discover that there's some genetic markers and as well as some epigenetic reasons why people may develop eating disorders. And it may not be as simple as, well, your mum had a restrictive eating and you've picked up on that, that, that it's much more complex than that. The big tricky thing with this that I took home is that, you know, it's, It's not about the food, but it has to be about the food because if people are malnourished, if they haven't had the nutrition that they need to be able to have complex thinking and decision-making, then you can't get anywhere. You can't have therapy. You can't start to heal until people have had enough nutrition that they're they're doing well. 
And I guess in summary that, you know, eating disorders are a biopsychosocial and a metabolic problem. And so we can't target one area without thinking about this as, as a very complex issue. Thankfully, your number four is that people can recover from eating disorders. And you were saying, you know, in the acute setting when people are acutely unwell, it can feel like that this is an impossible task and that treatment, you know, is really challenging and difficult for everybody involved. However, by the time that people get into the community that you regularly see people recover from quite complex eating disorders and go on to flourish and have a full and wonderful life. So there is hope out there. Number five is, where can I get more information and support? And I guess what I heard is that, that again, they're support at every level. So if you're initially concerned, you might go and see your family physician or a general practice um, doctor to kind of work out, you know, what's going on and, and some general markers around their bloods and their electrolytes, et cetera. But if you wanted to just find out some more information about eating disorders, um, in Australia and globally, there's a whole range of organisations. You mentioned Butterfly as one of those, um, that there is the the Queensland Eating Disorder Service um, and that there are a whole range of non-government as well as government and health organisations. And please look those up um, when you're at wherever you are in the world. The other thing is that this is requires a multidisciplinary approach and I imagine also family and friends and communities and schools should be heavily involved in helping people uh, recognise if there's an issue going on with their eating and also participating actively in their recovery. So some of the people that may need to be involved in that team as well as the family would again be a medical person, family physician, uh, a clinic social worker or a clinical psychologist, sometimes a psychiatrist. We might have exercise physiologists, occupational therapists, but dietitians would be really pivotal uh, in, in the involvement of this. If you are a bedside nurse and you've got some concerns about a patient and they have an eating disorder, but they're in with something else, please, if you're concerned, um, the first thing you might do is as part of your normal, normal practice, look at malnutrition, uh, Pay attention to what this person is or isn't eating. Before you go straight to the eating disorder, check in if it's around preferences. They just don't like hospital food. Uh, have they got nausea? Is there something else going on that we might be able to solve quite quickly without bringing the huge focus on their weight and food? Uh, our next step would be to involve the dietitian. So how did I go? Yeah, I think that's an excellent summary. You can also contact Queds for a consult at that point. Yeah. All right. Terrific. Erin, thank you so much today for joining us on Five Things and helping us to learn all about eating disorders. Thanks so much. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at 
Liz Crow 2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to Five Things 